glad you're here this morning, this beautiful, uh, now officially summer morning. It's starting to feel a little bit like that, so we've had a cold spring. We're glad you're here with us. If you're a guest, welcome. Uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, most Sundays I get to speak, but we have a team of guys, actually. So grateful for our team and their giftedness in speaking. So Pastor Jeff spoke last uh, Sunday on Father's Day and just did a fantastic job of leading us through the Word and the characteristics of our Father and our need for the grace of God and all that. So, uh, But this Sunday, uh, we're going to be back in our series in 2 Corinthians, going through this wonderful book and learning, um, learning about um, power and weakness, that God... God um, uses us in our weakness and um, shows his strength to them. So as you're turning there, we'll be in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Let me ask, what do you think is one of the greatest uh, renditions or experiences of the national anthem? So if you've ever watched a sporting event um, and seen them sing the national anthem, uh, what would be one of the most memorable ones that you've observed? Now, I can remember some bad ones, and you probably can too. You might say Whitney Houston's rendition, um, 1991, Super Bowl 25. I don't know if anyone here remember that one. I do. Um, you might say that, and, and certainly uh, her vocal ability was so unbelievable. It was memorable. But Bleacher Report rated the greatest, uh, most memorable rendition as that sung by Peter Rometty at Fenway Park on June 30th, 2007. Now, you probably don't know Peter Rometty. He's not a famous singer. He's actually a young man with autism. And on that day, in June 30, 2007, he was invited to sing the national anthem for autism awareness. And he got partway through a very challenging song, by the way. Uh, was it like two or three octaves? Uh, it's very challenging. Uh, and he started to get the giggles and lose his way. And what happened next is really what made the difference because Rather than sit there in awkward silence, the crowd joined in enthusiastically singing the national anthem. And no longer was it one person trying to get through this difficult song. It was 45,000 people singing loudly. And actually, if you watch the video, it carried Peter along. He joined it back in and sang along, and it was uh, quite an experience. And it was the most memorable, noteworthy singing of a national anthem. And it's really interesting to to think about it, it wasn't because of someone like Whitney Houston being up there singing it. It was because of Peter and his weakness that the greatest rendition was performed that day. And I think it's a wonderful picture of how God works. It's a wonderful picture of our passage today and really this entire book. We are learning about this reality that God chooses to use weakness to show his power and strength. He chooses to use his, our weakness and our limitations and our inability and even things that we fail to do um, to show up with his grace and to magnify uh, and demonstrate how wonderful his grace and goodness and power is. So God shows his strength and power through weakness. That's what we're learning in this whole book, and that's what we're going to learn today once again as we look at Apostle Paul as he brings uh, God's truth and God's word. So let's pray, because we need to hear this message, because the reality is that we are all like Peter. Um, we, we like to think of ourselves as omnicompetent, and everything hinges on our abilities, and certainly God uses our gifts and abilities, but the reality is, if we're honest, we are very weak, and we need to learn this lesson, so let's ask God for his help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful letter and how it just so clearly um, and repeatedly brings this truth to bear. And Lord, we need this truth, because it's reality. You are good and gracious, and you are mighty, and, and we are weak and needy of you. So I pray you'd help me to explain your word well. I pray you'd help us to hear, and I pray through this, uh, Lord, that you would do just what we're talking about. You would show yourself strong in weakness, because I'm weak so many ways, and we are weak to hear you, but you are mighty and gracious. So demonstrate your goodness and power in our weakness. In this time we pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read uh, verses 12 through 17 of chapter 2. Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest 
because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We're going to take time to dig into this paragraph and learn more about these truths. There's three things I want to cover here. I want to talk about weakness and how Paul talks about his weakness here. I want to talk about uh, Christ's victory parade and what that is and how Christ uses that. And then I want to talk about making him known, how he uses that to make himself known, all in this power being shown in weakness. So first, weakness. Paul starts out um, saying, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, so he, he's talking about his travel plans again. Remember, if you were here a little ways back, we talked about his travel plans. Uh, earlier on, they had accused him in chapter 1 of waffling, remember, flip-flop, uh, and that, you know, you say one thing and you do another. Uh, you're this mighty apostle, but, you know, you, you change your mind all the time. Why should we follow you? And so uh, he starts to address that earlier, and really now he kind of goes back to it um, and talking about his travel plans because the, he's talking about his current travel plans. And, and he's wanting them to kind of see what life is like for him as an apostle. It's really interesting to, to read this letter and just see how transparent Paul is. He lives in a, a sincere way. He's open and honest about his weaknesses and his struggles, and he points to Jesus. So he's saying, guys, this is, this is a little snapshot of my life as an apostle. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul had been in Ephesus, and he's traveling now northward. I think we have a slide to show the different travel plans, and again, this may or may not help you, but if you're kind of an engineer type, that may make sense. So the, the E is Ephesus, where he was in Ephesus. The C, C is Corinth, and then the M is Macedonia, so Macedonia is north, and this is kind of where they are in the compass. And so the first plan, he said, I'm gonna, he said in 1 Corinthians 16, I'm going to go to Macedonia, then come to you guys, and then go somewhere else, go to Jerusalem. That was his first time. That got changed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, well, I want to go to see you guys, and then I'm I want to go to Macedonia, and then come back to see you guys, and then go to Jerusalem. And in actuality now, as he's writing 2 Corinthians, he is going from E to M, that's uh, Ephesus, to Macedonia. And then he's writing a letter now from Macedonia. So the letter is being written as he's in Macedonia. And so this is, this is travel plan three, at least, of the Apostle Paul. And so he's, he's not saying, well, you know, um, it was God who told me to do these things, and he changed it, and so, you know, no question. He isn't like that. He's like, here, here's my life. Here's who I am. And, and so he's letting them enter in here in this section, in verses 12 through 13, what life is like for him. So he goes from Ephesus to Troas. Um, he's traveling to Troas through the city north, and I think we have a map there. Again, maps are good for some people and not others. Um, so he goes from Ephesus, he goes north to Troas. Troas is an important city. It's on uh, this, the strait, Bosphorus Strait, that goes into the Black Sea, so it's a very busy port, very important city. He goes to Troas uh, from Ephesus, and he says here, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, he says, There's, I, I went to Troas from Ephesus, to preach the good news of Christ. And it says, even though a door is open for me in the Lord. So things actually were good in Troas. And he said that having come from Ephesus. And if you back up and read in Acts 18, you'll see what went on in Ephesus. Ephesus was unbelievable in what happened in terms of the gospel changing lives. So he proclaimed the gospel there with his team. And God used them in powerful miracles in different ways. And it changed thousands, if not tens of thousands, of people's lives. Uh, you can kind of go back and, and uh, look in at, at chapter 18 and see 
Uh, why? There's a couple reasons. We know that it wasn't just like a, a handful of believers. Um, it was a lot because what happened in one of the encounters, a, a demon gets driven out, and there's an altercation with that, and, and uh, people in Paul's authority from Christ is kind of made known through that, and people repent, and they confess their sins, and they burn their magical sc- scrolls, because Ephesus was a place full of the occult. And these were people that, many of them were even professing Christ, but hadn't put away the old ways. And when they saw this power encounter that had gone on, they realized, whoa, I better not mess with that stuff anymore. And they came to burn the scrolls. And the total worth of those scrolls was multi-millions of dollars. So we know that, that it's likely that there were a lot of people who were burning their scrolls to, to amount to that sort of dollar amount. Um, secondly, what, why Paul left Ephesus is because there was a riot. And the riot was started by those who made little um, idols of Artemis, silver idols that were sold in Ephesus. It had one of the, the uh, ancient wonders of the world. The Temple of Artemis was there, and all that went with that, and all that, that uh, the pagan philosophy there, and the immorality as well. But they, these guys made money selling these little silver idols. And they rioted because they were running, going out of business. Why were they going out of business? Because so many people were coming to Jesus and putting away the idols that they didn't have a, a, a way to make money anymore, so they rioted. So that's not 100 people. That's probably thousands, even tens of thousands of people. So it was an amazing work of God in Ephesus. But God in his sovereignty and his control of all things allows that riot to happen. Paul has to leave. And so he goes to Troas, and Troas looks ju- equally good. There's an open door. Now, we don't know the specifics of that open door, but things look good. And he says, this, even though an open door, a, a door was open to me in the Lord, he says, my spirit was not at rest. Why? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So he left Troas to go to Macedonia, hoping to find Titus. And why is that important? Why, why is his spirit not at rest because Titus is not there? Well, Titus has been sent to Corinth with a letter pleading with them to repent because they had not followed through in some of the things that Paul had written about in 1 Corinthians. There were some very serious, unethical, immoral things going on there. And he basically said, look, if you're believers, you, you know, Jesus calls us to a different lifestyle. So this man who's doing this, you, you can't have him in the church because you can't say, I follow Jesus and then be living with his aunt is what was going on. And they need to follow through and discipline. And it looks like what happened in, with all that is some leaders started to oppose Paul, probably... They sympathized with the man and whatever. We don't know all the details. And they started to besmirch Paul's character. And so he sent Titus to bring a letter uh, to, to go to them and bring a letter to confront them, to plead with them, to turn and do the right thing, to trust God in them. Um, and so Titus hasn't come back. He's in Troas. Things are going really well. There's open door, but, but his burden for Corinth is so heavy that when Titus is not there, it's like, I just can't do this. I can't go on. So there's this wonderful blessing of, of the fruit of the gospel happening in Troas, but there's this incredible burden of, of the struggles in Corinth and these people he loved and, and his love for Christ and the glory of God through the Corinthian church, that he's carrying this burden, and his dear friend Titus, his brother, has not come back. And so he's not at rest, and so he, he moves on to Macedonia. So it's a detail here, and it may just seem like, well, Paul's just kind of, you know, giving the details, but I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Paul is writing with the design to demonstrate that he's weak, that genuine Christian leadership, genuine Christian maturity is not superhero Christianity. It's not triumphalistic Christianity where all your plans you know, come to pass and, and you're, you're always full of joy and you're never torn between two things or, or you never have your heart broke. He's saying, no, this is what my life looks like. I go to Troas and there's an open door, but I can't go on because of my burden for you guys and for Titus. This is a day in the life of an apostle, but, but it's an example for us, all believers, that this is what it looks like to be a Christian. To live in weakness, to live transparently, but to depend on Christ. This is reality. Um, and, and, and so Paul's being honest. He's wanting to model this for them to show what, it, what it's like. 
David Paulson is a uh, biblical counselor who just went to be with the Lord a week and a half ago. He was used by God to teach what a Christ-centered life looks like. And the last thing he said to a to publicly, actually, to a group of seminarians was this. I think we have the quote to put up there. He spoke to these seminarians, so future pastors, and he said, it's so countercultural to people who want to say, we are strong, and you can do it. On the contrary, we are fundamentally weak. That weakness is a most unusual door into all the ways God enables us to be strong. And then he said to th- this to them, my deepest hope for you is that in both your personal life and in your ministry to others, you would be unafraid to be publicly weak as the doorway to the strength of God himself. That's what Paul's doing here in this passage. He's putting his weakness on display. He's putting the weakness of a frail human heart that cannot carry both the burden of blessing and the burden of of the trials with Corinth at the same time, in and of himself. It's a a burden beyond him, and and it's a burden that causes him to change his plans. And this reality is when you follow Jesus, you are going to be brought to the place where you face your weakness. Your heart will be broken. You will at the same time be full of great joys and great sorrows. And you will have to face your weakness in that. That's what Paul is doing here. So let me just ask, do you have this understanding of the Christian life? Is this how you understand the Christian life? Is this at the core of, of what you think following Christ looks like? Or is there something else? Do you understand that if you endeavor to follow Jesus and serve others, you will be confronted with your own weakness? Your heart will be broken. Your strength will be sapped. Your own capacity to love or your own capacity to forgive will be emptied. Even your sense of identity will be stretched and tested and probably altered. Ultimately for good if you look to Jesus. Do you understand that this is what it it means to follow Jesus? And this is the reality of following him. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, of course, God meets us, and we meet his strength, and there's wonderful joy in him, but it's in him, and that's part of what he does in allowing our weakness to be exposed. It's so we don't rely on ourselves. We don't look at ourselves. We look to him and his strength. But Paul points out this reality of our weakness. Is this your version of Christianity? what I would submit to you that is that this is Jesus' version. This is the Bible's version of Christianity. But there's more in the story here, of course. Paul goes on, having talked about this struggle that he's had and what it's been like, and that he's torn. He, he lives in the, this world of great joy and yet great sorrow and burden at the same time. And so then he starts to turn his attention, and he's actually going to turn his attention for the next uh, five chapters into the heavenly realities that are all part of life in Christ. So he's facing his weakness, but he's going to start to turn his attention to the, the heavenly realities that speak to that weakness and speak of how strength meets us in our weakness. So he says in verse 14, But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. This is me. I'm torn. I don't know whether I should go to Corinth or Macedonia. I don't know what to do at times. I'm, I'm even on the doorstep of great gospel breakthrough. I, I, I'm not at rest. This is who I am. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But thanks be to God. God actually uses this. And he uses our weakness. And he uses us amidst these challenges to lead us in triumphal procession. Now, it's interesting, maybe as we use that word, triumphal procession, um, in the original language it's one word, but as we use that word, maybe the Corinthians' ears perked up. Oh, I like this, triumph. Yes, that's the Christian life, the triumphal life. Oh, he's going to get into the triumphal life. W- w- and, and maybe they were thinking that, but, but we have to understand that actually that this triumphal procession has a little more meaning than, than maybe what they thought. And it's a little different too, like we don't, we don't use triumphal procession. Like, hey, are you going to the triumphal procession today? Right? We don't use that. It's not a common word. So, so what is that? 
What is the term for procession? Well, the word was what was used for basically a victory parade. Now that's what another way to translate it is a victory parade. And, and in their culture at the time, they had victory parades. They were military, mostly, um, and, and they celebrated. But, but we have victory parades, right? Um, yeah, this is where I'm, I'm – if you're not a Boston fan, please bear with us. Um, God, will, God will show us our weakness at some point or another in, a, in sports. But we know what a victory parade is, right? Six of them for the, the Patriots. Uh, the Red Sox have had four recently. Before that, it was a long time before we had them. But the Celtics had 17 championships, uh, the last one in 2008. The Bruins, six, almost had one recently, came so close. Um, last one in 2011. They, and, the, you know, mo in modern times, they have these victory parades, right? Oh, we got the pitchers up there, yeah. There's, there's the victory parade. Get the duck boats out, right? And we have this victory parade. Well, that is the idea that Paul's pointing to. But there are some elements in the ancient victory parade that we don't have in the modern and this is part of what Paul is saying here. That the victory parade here is a little different. Well, a couple of, of the details. First off, in the victory parade in Paul's time, um, there would have been soldiers marching. There would have been music. There would have been, um, there would have been all, you know, everyone in their uniforms and so forth. There would have been actually flowers and spices and incense as well. So it was like a multi-sensory ex experience to be there at the victory parade. The music, the soldiers marching, the smells of the flowers, the incense and the spices. It's this grand spectacle. But part of the victory parade, you would have the conquering general and maybe his top officers, and then you'd have a bunch of the prisoners of war behind marching. And all their best outfits as well, but in pink, marching behind. That's what the victory parade looked like for them. It, it showed indeed the conquering general and his, his chief officers perhaps, um, but it also showed the prisoners who were, were walking as prisoners of the conquering general as part of the parade. And so Paul, in saying he leads us always in triumphal procession, uh, he is saying that we're the guys behind the conquering general in chains, having been conquered. Jesus is the victor in this parade. He's the one who's overcome. But we know the story that even his victory came through suffering and weakness and death. And so this is a very different victory parade than, than maybe what they expected uh, in Corinth. Very different type of victory parade. And they probably were thinking, yeah, marching up the front, conquering generals. Paul's saying, no. He leads us in triumphal procession. He's at the front. We're being led as captives here. And, and we're going to see later on in, in the letter, it makes that even clearer. Um, and early on in 1 Corinthians, he talks about uh, we apostles being the scum of the earth. So, so he's understanding this as we're, we're the captives here. And we're in this victory parade, this triumphal procession. And through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So this triumphal procession, actually, though we are the captives, though we are following Jesus, though we are walking in weakness, yet he's displaying his strength through us. Through all this, he is actually spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere we go. Through our message and through our lives. Um, our lives are on display, making the knowledge of God known through what we do. And so this is part of what's going on in, in Paul's life. And what he's saying is, yes, I'm weak, but God is doing powerful things through our lives, even through our weakness, to make his truth known, to make the knowledge of him known everywhere we go. So wherever Paul has gone, be it Troas or Ephesus or Corinth, eventually to the ends of the earth through God's people, he is making, God is making the knowledge of God known throughout the world. So, let's look at how that happens as it goes on in the paragraph on, on that point three. He goes on to describe it and says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. So we're spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We're the aroma of Christ to God among two different types of people. So in this parade, as we're walking behind him, having been conquered by him, 
having turned away from sin and self and realizing we're weak and we need him, we belong to him now, and in him we find life, in him we have strength. As we live our lives and walk in this victory parade, and just live our lives before others, whether we're apostles or, or just believers as part of a church, whatever our call might be, we're all in this victory, victory parade, and God is demonstrating through us and through our lives the knowledge of God. And that, that aroma goes out, and it has a dual effect. It points to the victory of Christ, this, this king who is an unking. Um, it's, it's spreading everywhere the knowledge of him, but it has a different effect, depending. So I think it would be important actually to, to pause a minute to talk a little bit about the actual victory of Christ, because I think as we understand the victory of Christ and how it affects us, then we start to understand how it affects others and why some people, the fragrance is really good. It's life to life. It's sweet. But for other people, it's death to death. It's, it reeks. Why? Well, I think the answer is, is in the conquering king himself, and we know the story. Maybe some of us haven't heard the story before, but the story of the victory of Christ, that God, the eternal son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, we use the word Trinity to uh, say triunity because God is shown in Scripture as three persons in one being. It's beyond our understanding, so we say he's three in one, he's one in three, we call it Trinity. But the second person of the Trinity in the counsel of God, in his great love for us, in our lostness, took on flesh, became a human. God himself, the eternal one, who, who's made all things and through, through whom nothing... Uh, apart from whom nothing exists, this God who's made all things and stands apart from his creation, having made creation, eternally and can never be contained in creation, has entered into creation as a man, taken on flesh, become a full human being, while being eternally God, two natures in one being, and then lived a, a plain life in many ways among us. Grew up with having to obey his parents, had to clean his room, had to, had to, you know, deal with the bully down the street. All these different things, normal, a normal life. He lived a normal life, but he was not simply a normal human being. He was, but he was also God in the flesh. And so in that and in his role as the Messiah, the chosen king, he was faithful to fulfill all righteousness. And we know as his ministry started after his baptism, he was used to do mighty miracles. And all those miracles demonstrate the kingdom of God, the reign of God over all things. He demonstrated that he wasn't just a mere man, but that he was God in the flesh. He demonstrated God's reign by doing miracles over all of creation and every uh, sort of situation and every sort of ruler that is there spiritually and so forth. His miracles are there to demonstrate that he has authority, um, that he, he's greater than all these things. And he taught. He taught truth in ways that to this day... Uh, as people who, who don't believe that he is God in the flesh read his teaching, they, they stand in awe and say, wow, this, this, it's genius. It's truth. So he demonstrated through miracles and through his teaching who he was. And then in his great love for us and for his Father, he took that beautiful, precious life, that sinless life, and he offered it up on the cross. And this is, this is a scandal to Jewish people understanding certain aspects of Scripture but not others. An offense to the Gentile. The, the, the fact that God's king would go to the cross makes no sense in the world's eyes because he went to that cross, he suffered ultimate defeat on the cross. The cross was, was not a, a piece of jewelry cross was a, a terrible thing. It was, it was so feared and, and so thought of that actually it was a swear word. You did not say cross in good company. Because the cross was designed as a brutal way of shaming someone to the point of death. That's what the cross was about. It was shameful to die on the cross. They, they were stripped. They were stripped naked. That's the reality. On the cross. It was shameful. They were put on display right in front of everybody. They died a slow death. And only the very, 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 very worst criminals were crucified. God 
chose to be shamed in this way to win victory for you and me. Because on the cross, he took on such great shame as he bore sin. He bore our sin. And he took the blame and the shame on the cross. And he paid for it completely. He suffered the fullness of the consequences that we ought to pay. The fullness of the shame that comes with our bad decisions. He took on himself. He was shamed to the point of of becoming the lowest. And he lived in weakness. And in that weakness, as he bore our sin, as the holy justice of God was poured out on the Son, he paid for our sins and he won victory. He overcame sin and death. He overcame our sin. He overcame the consequences of our sin. And so on the third day, he was raised victoriously from the dead, alive forevermore, ascended and reigning, and one day will complete his reign in every way. He is the victorious king, but the victory came through through deep, dark shame and weakness. So he's an unking. He's different than any earthly king in this. And when we come to him, when we recognize that, that his death on the cross was not just a theological idea, a nice religious thing, but actually was a very personal thing because he took my sin, your sin, on himself. And when you realize that and you place your faith in him, you yourself receive forgiveness in life. But there's a connection to Christ we call the union with Christ, that when you put your faith in him, you are actually dying with him as well. Because what you're saying through the cross is, Two things. I am so bad in my sin and my choices that God himself, as Jesus, had to rescue me by dying in my place. That's how bad my sin is. That's how bad I am in and of myself. I have no hope of earning God's favor. I have no hope of earning heaven. I have no hope of somehow blotting out my mistakes by doing enough good. I'm so desperate, I'm so unable, I'm so weak, I'm so incapable that God had to come down to earth and die for me in my place on the cross. So the cross criticizes us and lays us lower than anything else can. It's offensive. You think you're good? You're not. You think you can earn heaven? You're not. You think you're good enough to get there? You're not. You and I if we were to see the depths of our depravity, and we don't even see the, the, the small smidgen of it, I think that's mercy, the despair. But by grace, as we start to see and we realize, wow, maybe God's right, we recognize the cross criticizes us, it lays us lower than anything else can. Yet, the second thing it says, we are so loved by God, the infinite, eternal one, who, who doesn't need our love, yet loves us. That he sent even his own son in exchange for us. That he loved us so much that he didn't want to condemn us but wanted to rescue us. So he sent his son, God the Son, came in the flesh and died for us and rose again that through faith in him we might have forgiveness, that we might know him and be free and love him and live in him. So the cross says those two things together. And when we come to faith, what we're saying is, I'm dying to myself, I'm dying to my religious efforts, I'm dying to my self-image that says, yeah, God, God will accept me. I'm good enough. I'm dying to all that. So it, it, it offends us to the point of death. But then it lifts us up to the point of everlasting life in him. And he says, you're my son or you're my daughter. You are welcome. You are beloved. I'm so glad you belong to me. So those two things are said by the cross. And, and those two things really are our experience in coming to faith, that we go through that in union with Christ. So it causes us to die. And in, in, and in dying, we say, I'm dead to myself. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's not about me. And if he wants to take me to somewhere where I don't want to go, if, if like Paul, it means that I have to go to cities and have people persecute me, you know, we'll do that because I've died. But I, I live in him. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this is the life. This is the Christian life. It's death and life together. And so now does it make sense why when you're on parade behind Jesus, some people say, sweet, this is glorious. This is good. I want this. And others say, no, 
I want nothing to do with this at all. The cross and the Christian life automatically come across those two different ways. To those who are being saved, those who are being drawn, those who are coming and being drawn to the Lord, it's sweet. It's life. Life. It's yes. There really is an answer for my sins and my weakness and my need. And yes, He really does love me. And I like this. I know it means my death, but, but I'm okay with that. I want to live in Him. It's sweet. But for the other side, to those who are perishing, those who are saying, I, I want it my own way. I don't need God. I don't need this Jesus dying for me on the cross. I, I hope I've never done anything that serious. For those who are rejecting that, it's offensive. What do you mean I'm so bad? God Himself had to die for me. How dare you say such things? I'm pretty good. I do this, I do that. And of course, just to understand, God loves those good things. It's not that he's opposed to good things. But he's never going to say, okay, you did enough. Because he's truthful. He's not going to cover that and lie to you. Because he wants you to find a solution. You need to admit, when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you got this problem, how dare you say that I'm sick? No. Oh, wow, I'm sick. Let's get the cure. So it's meant to be redemptive, but it, but... If we're refusing that, it's offensive. And we live in that. And so that's what Paul's saying, is that we're on display here. And, and, and the truth of the gospel and following Jesus comes across in this way. And it has this powerful impact. It's just the, the reality that's there. And, and it's sweet to others, and, and it's, it's weeks to some as well. And then Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? If you think about it, Wow. We are in this victory parade and, and we are through our lives and through our proclamation are doing probably one of the most significant things that can be done on earth. We're making the life of following Christ and the gospel known and it's going to mean eternal life to some and eternal separation from God for others. And you know what? Who's sufficient for these things? Who can carry that burden? Who can be responsible enough to, to do everything right with that. Who's sufficient for these things? Paul's answer is no. We're not sufficient. This is overwhelming. This is more than we can handle. But that's the reality that drives us to him. Oh Lord, help me. Help me in this. I need you. I need your love. I need your ability to forgive. I need your ability to believe that you would use me with my neighbors and friends. I need your help. I need you to meet me here. And then Paul says, and for him and his team, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. We, don't, we recognize this is what we're called to, and we're not going to peddle this. We're not going to do this for profit. This isn't about having a nice apostolic position somehow. This is serious stuff, and we are overwhelmed by it. So we're going to do what we ought to do, which is we live before God. We walk in sincerity. We're men of sincerity. We're just saying, hey guys, this is who we are. This is who He is. And we're just presenting that to you. We're commissioned by God. We walk in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. It leads to this ethic of sobriety and dependence on the Lord. So He's explaining His ministry. He's explaining how He's weak and yet strong in the Lord. And He's doing this as well as an example. We're called to the same thing. We're called to be His ambassadors. We're called to be on display in this victory parade. Commissioned by God to speak in Christ. We're to use our lives in dependence on Him. To walk in sincerity. To not put on a show. To be honest. I'm weak. I need Him. This is who I am. And we leave it to Him to convince people. We leave, leave it to people to see the truth in that. We walk in sincerity. We walk in simplicity. It's sobering, it's beyond our strength, but let me tell you, God does powerful things through us. Paul says this having come from Ephesus. Paul says this having been in Troas and seen an open door. He's confident in God's ability to work powerfully, to change lives, to take people who, who seem the hardest and most opposed to the things of God and transform them in hearing the good news of Jesus where they come and they turn and trust in Jesus and live in Him. As we close and, and 
we'll do some Q&As with them. It doesn't have to come up yet. But um, I was just thinking about, for us, for this as a church, I, this past year, we had two baptismal services. We were able to baptize 16 people uh, altogether. Um, it's just wonderful to think. There's 16 people representing young people who have grown up in a, a believing family and are now ready to trust the Lord and follow him and make that proclamation. About half were uh, people growing up in the church. The other half or so were people who had come to Christ in our church. Lives changed by the good news of Jesus. As you guys just see yourselves, as you just march in this victory procession saying, hey, here's who I am. I'm weak, but he's great. He's conquered me. I, I can't see doing life any other way. And, and just welcoming people and loving them. Sixteen people, it's wonderful. Uh, we're seeing great fruit. We are seeing five of our members going overseas, serving in short-term or mid-term missions. God has called you and is using you guys in that victory parade. And we're so, we're so grateful for that. This week, as Pastor Jeff prayed, we have youth camp. And, and I just trust that during youth camp, um, God's going to work as the message is proclaimed, as, as we live our lives there. And there are going to be young people who didn't know the Lord before are going to come to know him because he works powerfully. There's going to be young people who, who maybe in just their Christian growth are ready to hear that ne next message and say, you know what, Lord? You're better than anything else I could ever have. I want you above all these other things. And there's going to be young people who experience that light and understand. And, th and that smell is going to maybe turn from being kind of maybe mixed, sweet, and bad to like, no, no, it's good. <laughs> I like this, and I want this. I want this life. We have VBS coming up end of July. Same sort of thing. I love our VBS. God blesses us. And we all know we are weak. <laughs> Uh, and and it, 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 we get so many compliments, and I know every one of us, I'm sure, says, you you got to know <laughs> that we can do this on our own. Um, God loves to put his power on display and to touch lives. I'm so excited. And then in the fall, we're doing Alpha. Alpha is just a great opportunity to do this together. Um, I'm praying. I'll, I'd like to invite you to pray for 40 guests for our Alpha program starting in, in early September. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you if you're interested in helping. Uh, we had a great crew last time. And I think I have a bunch of pictures of all this stuff, but now I'm through it anyhow. Those are just examples in our church. And I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to understand the application of these things. God is using you in a very similar way and in a very powerful way. And it's probably just by way of reminder, let's remember this. Let's walk welcoming our weakness, being honest together, sharing. It's interesting that it, throughout this you'll see Paul and his dependence on friends. So he says, uh, I went to Troas and my friend, my brother Titus wasn't there. He depends on his brother Titus. And his part of his weakness is recognizing I need others. He said earlier in chapter 1, right, he said, uh, you, you must pray, right? And as you pray, we're going to get over this thing. He's talking about his, his despairing unto death. And so there's this reality of doing it together. And so let's, let's do that, guys. Let's, let's be honest with our weakness. Let's recognize that we depend on Jesus. We need him. Let's support one another. Let's walk this out, and let's walk, watch God do these sorts of things and even more. Let me pray, and then we'll transition to a little bit of time of Q&A and go from there. Thank you, Lord, for your word here in 2 Corinthians. It's so helpful, Lord, because we all face our weakness, and sometimes we feel like we have to hide our weakness, and this example of Paul is encouraging. And we thank you, Jesus, that through your weakness, you brought greatest strength available to us. Forgiveness and eternal life and a new life of following you and loving others in your name. We thank you for that. We ask for that sort of power to be on full display through this church and through our lives individually and corporately in all the things we're doing. As we go to youth camp this week, as we go to VBS, as the five uh, young ladies serve throughout the globe, Lord God, as we enter into Alpha, and really just all the, the, the normal things of our weeks and lives, may your power be on display to the world through our weakness, for your glory and the good of those around us, we ask in Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, if you haven't been here for our Second Corinthians series, we are doing something a little different. We're doing a little bit of Q&A, uh, and so we take five or ten minutes or so just to ask questions, no uh, no question is off limits, so you can ask away. Uh, and if you could kind of keep it, I mean, I, I guess if it's off topic, I'll do my best to answer it, but we're just wanting to ask questions about the text and about the, the uh, particular points that were found in that text. 
So you can ask anything. It can be a technical question, you know, like how many people lived in Troas? Um, it can be, you know, how do we apply this to our lives? Any, any sort of question. So um, anyone want to ask a question? I know the first one's always the, the hardest because you've got to either want to break the ice. So who wants to start? Yes, Andrea. Paul's backing up a little bit in this. So he's already talked, he's already moved ahead in the, the chapter about, because Titus has already come back when he starts the letter. But now he's talking about what, he's, what had happened. So he had left Ephesus and gone to Troas. And there probably was a plan that Titus would meet him in Troas. But Titus had been sent to uh, Corinth with the painful letter. Uh, and he was supposed to go there and deliver that and then come back and meet Paul. And Paul had been praying that it would work. Uh, and so uh, he goes to Troas and Titus isn't there troubled by that. So the chronology of the letter, he jumps around a little bit. So he's, he's you know, chapter one and earlier part of chapter two, he, he already had moved past Titus coming and then, because remember he said, you know, like, I'm so glad that you repented, right, and you should receive this guy, right, so that, he's already said that. He's already got the letter when he writes this letter, but now he's backtracking. Because I think he wants to illustrate his life. He wants to, to go back a little bit, and like, this is my life. Um, so, so that's what we're doing. I hope that, I hope that makes sense. Another question. Yes, Anthony. Yeah. 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 So why did Paul say peddling and what, what's the um, meaning of that? And yes, Andrew, you're right. I, uh, he is he is addressing what's going on. So he's going to do that more too in the next paragraph and then throughout the letter. Uh, and so it appears that there are people who have kind of taken over in Corinth and taken over in influence by besmirching Paul. Um, and their mo is very different. They're triumphalistic. They're probably competent uh, speakers. That's been a, something that's plagued Paul a little bit. He's, he's not super eloquent. He's trained in rhetoric. You can see it in his letters. They're amazing. Uh, but he's probably not as polished in his speech. Um, so th and he's, you know, th they think that he was small and not necessarily physically attractive and so forth. So he had a lot of things going against him in terms of worldly appeal. So these guys come in, and they're, you know, they're the movie stars, um, and they, they speak well. And, but they're also bringing with it a lot of worldly things. Uh, and so uh, the, it was common in those days for philosophers uh, and people who were like what Paul was doing to actually be supported and paid um, by their pupils. And, and, and um, so basically, if you liked a guy, you, you paid for him. Paul doesn't do that, right? He's there to serve. He's there to proclaim Christ. He's there to rely on the power of God and the, and the truth of the gospel. But these guys are probably literally peddling the word of God. Um, the, the word is like it's what a peddler is. It's a street vendor sort of thing. So they are, they are charging money you know, for what they're doing. And they are also, there's a lot of other things we're going to bump into as we go. Like next thing is going to, Paul will say, do I need letters of commendation like these other guys? So these guys have letters, you know, they have their, they have their degrees and frames, you know, like, a, you know, and, and he's, look, this is who I am. I'm great. You need to follow me. Paul, so you guys, why do you even follow that guy? And he's all gloom and doom and weakness. This is victorious Christian life. Um, that's what they're saying. So, and I think, you know, we can probably, it doesn't take too much to start to realize that's the present reality too. This is offering something very different as far as Paul. So, great question. I hope that answers it. Other questions? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Paul, that's actually um, the idea is in 1 Corinthians a little bit, but then this theme is throughout 2 Corinthians. Um, so, you're going to see the well known verse later on where, uh, where he says that my, the Lord says my grace is sufficient for you. Yeah, that's going to come up in chapter 12. So that's right in line with what, what, we're, what we're seeing. Uh, and I realize one of the things that's challenging in this, in this letter is like the whole thing almost, except for about two chapters, is about power and weakness. And we could get weary of that theme after a while. You know, okay, here's another message on power and weakness, but we're going to see different aspects of it. And I think by going through it, we're going to finish up in the fall, uh, I think before Christmas in this series. 
And I think the benefit is as, as we emphasize this week after week and see some different nuances in it, I trust it's going to change for us. And I think we're going to be stronger for it. And we're going to be more honest with our weaknesses. And I think we'll build our fellowship together because we're going to understand, look, we all share these things. Um, we had, just so you know, we had a wonderful time with pastors and wives last night doing this very thing together, sharing what the things are. And, and, and I can't, you know, I'm not going to tell you those things. You can ask me mine. But, um, but we all were very honest and very transparent. And so we're learning to do this. We want to be a church that does this. Because when we do it, the effect is, right, the fragrance goes out. And it's, and it's used of God to touch lives. So, yeah. Any other questions? Take one more. Yes, Stephen. That theme is there throughout the word, and it's so important for us to understand that. It's that we, I talked about the other week, the, the J curve, you know, which is that's the Christian life, dying and then rising again in life. And, um, and that's hard for our human nature. We don't want to do that, right? <laughs> Can we just go direct to life? Can we just go direct to comfort and ease, you know? And the Lord says, well, I want to get you there, but I really, I truly want to get you there. And so you have to go through death to life first. Brings a message to the world, I think, that the world needs to hear. Yes. Say that again, sorry. Yes. Yes. Yep. So the audience to the Victory Parade would have been the populace, and then the implication here, Paul's saying everywhere. He's, he's taking his missionary team all throughout uh, Europe and Asia, parts of Asia. Um, and so that's, yeah, they're all, they're all seeing the Victory Parade that way. And then, uh, you know, Paul is planting churches, so it's the church's job, local churches, and our church among many churches here in this area, of conducting that victory parade and people observing it. And that, that's just, no individual can do the parade everywhere, right? So we as a church do it. So. Great, let me stop there. Excellent question, guys. Thank you. Um, so let's, uh, let's, if the band could come up, and uh, we're going to transition to communion. Uh, so Pastor Jeff will come up and transition us, and, and the elements will be passed out certainly fitting uh, application is to share communion together. So come on up, man, and Pastor Jeff, come on up and transition us.